Pilgrim's not done. He's got another question for Virgil, and this one's a doozy. Last time, he just wanted to know how come people were punished outside the walls of Dis as well as inside. This time, it's harder. I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. We have come slowly, walking step by step, all the way to the end of Canto 11 of Inferno. We are inside the city of hell, the city of Dis. We are stopped momentarily. Virgil has explained the road ahead. And now our pilgrim has the second question. Two questions. Last time, why some in, why some out? This time, a corker. So without anything else, before we get to the passage, let's just have it. Canto 11, lines 91 through 114. O sun who brings health to every troubled vision, you make me very content when you solve these things, so that my doubts are no less pleasurable than what I know. But back up a little, I said, to where you talked about how usury offends divine beneficence, and pick apart that knot. Philosophy, he said to me, when properly understood notes, and not just in one spot, how nature takes her course from the divine intellect and its art. And if you really study your physics, you will find, after not too many pages, that your own art, as much as it can, follows along as the pupil follows the master. Your art, then, is sort of like God's grandchild. From these two, if you call to mind the opening verses of Genesis, we find the ways to enhance life and advance humanity. And because the usurer goes another way, he disrespects both nature and her disciple, setting his hope in something else. But now follow me, for I wish to be on our way. Pisces glitters at the horizon and the Big Dipper lies in the direction of the northwest wind, and our descent is still farther on. We end with a temporal reference from Virgil. How Virgil knows where the, the constellations are, Pisces and the Big Dipper, it's a curious question down in hell. We're not even going to touch it. Instead, we're just going to let it be that we end with a temporal marker. But before that, there's several things to say about this complicated and complex passage about why usurers are punished amongst the violent. Let's get to the pilgrim's question. O son, who brings health to every troubled vision. Oh, wow. The pilgrim is laying it on thick here. I think that that peak that Virgil expressed in the last episode and in the last passage, that irritation, well, what your genius skipping its furrows from the plow, I think the pilgrim has learned, oh, approach the master carefully. And he does. I love that he does. He comes right back with an even thornier problem. So, does call Virgil's son, brings health. You make me very content when you solve these things so that my doubts are no less pleasurable than what I know. In other words, it's just as fun to have questions and doubts as it is to know because you make knowing so much fun. It's like he's turning Virgil into a PBS show. So he says, but back up a little. And now the fingers approach the tiger's cage again to where you talked about how usury offends divine beneficence and pick apart that knot. Apparently, 
we should just say here in this question, the pilgrim has focused on divine beneficence and Virgil's going to pull it out. Virgil already did pull it out before in the previous passage. If you go back and look at those lines about fraud just above us in the text, you'll see that Virgil has picked this out a little bit. And the pilgrim has focused, unfortunately, just on divine beneficence, but not on the other part, which is nature which is what we're getting to. So that's the problem in the question. But let's just stop and say it's also a question about usury because why is usury punished so far down in hell? Usury, making interest off money, why does that get lower than, I don't know, all those clerics who are hoarding money or wasting money that should go to the poor from the church or murderers? Why why in the world are the usurers so far down there? They're at the very bottom of circle seven, right on the edge of the cliff before we go down to circle eight. They're just right out there. What What in the world is so wrong with usury? Part of it is going to be a scholastic answer, and part of it is going to be an intriguing theory that is going to suddenly appear in the text. So let's get to Virgil's reply. Philosophy, he said to me, when properly understood notes and not just in one spot, notice Boy, Virgil is covering his ground here. He's his his sentences are a little crabbed and they're a little weird right here. And he's backing up and qualifying constantly to tell you, hey, now listen, this comes from a lot of different places at once. And one of the weirdest things about this passage is that Virgil's going to quote or at least refer back to Genesis, a book of the Bible, this old Roman poet. So it's all very complicated in here. So he says, philosophy, when properly understood, notes, and not just in one spot, how nature, and notice Virgil has shifted the dynamics or the terms of the inquiry. The pilgrim was focused on divine beneficence. Virgil is changing it to nature. Not just in one spot, how nature takes her own course from the divine intellect and its art. So nature takes what it does because it is, well, how do I say this? Nature is God's art. The natural world, the way the natural world operates is God's art. And here's what's so amazing. In order to answer this question about usury, about making interest on money and why it's such a damnable offense, we're going to get an entire theory of art and how art operates. It's so shocking. It's so out of the blue. It's so unexpected that if you're not careful in comedy, you'll miss it. But there is an entire theory of art that is about to be explained. Moving on with Virgil, if you really study your physics, he's talking about Aristotle's physics. He's particularly talking about chapter six. And let me just say one thing about the physics and chapter six. Nature is beneficent and reasonable. In chapter six of the physics, that's Aristotle's claim that nature itself, the, the world around you, the material world, <laughs> the weather, all of it is beneficent and reasonable. Of course, you're going to point to me of hurricane, hurricanes hitting New Orleans and, and Houston. You're going to point earthquakes hitting Japan. You're going to say to me, are you crazy? Nature is beneficent and reasonable. I'm just telling you, it was Aristotle's dictum 
and it is bought hook, line, and sinker in the deductive reasoning of the Middle Ages. It may seem insane to me, may seem insane to have grown up in a time of Bangladesh floods, to have watched horrible tsunamis hit Japan. It may seem crazy to make these claims. You got to buy it. You got you to gotta eat it in order to digest the whole meal here. So, fine. Aristotle, nature is beneficent and reasonable. So, study your physics. And Virgil says you will find, after not too many pages, notice Virgil keeps qualifying when he says that your own art, as much as it can, follows along as the pupil follows the master. Here's the theory. Nature is God's art, and your art is is based on nature. Or how about this? Nature is based on divine intellect in the same way that the art that you make is based on nature. That's basically the theory of art as it starts to get pulled apart. Your own art, as much as it can, follows along as the pupil follows your the master. So your art is sort of like God's grandchild. Notice what art is. Art is educative. It follows as the pupil follows the master. So its master is nature. It follows it as a pupil, and therefore it has an educative function about it. Notice, too, that art is generative, that it is God's grandchild. Now, notice art is twice removed from God. If nature is God's child, then art, which is based on nature, is God's grandchild. Fascinating, right? But there's a two remove. So art is double removed from God. I'm going to just pose the question right here. What does that tell you about the comedy? What does it tell you about an artist making a poem like this? Because, (laughs) I mean, after all, what you're saying is you're making something too removed from God. You're making God's grandchild here with this beautiful artistic poem. But Isn't that a little less than making God's child or just simply reveling in God's child itself? A little bit of a fudging problem there. I think that the comedy is ultimately going to answer this question. That is, how is it twice removed from God and yet still true? But I'm just dropping that as a question right here. It's just being formulated as part of an artistic theory. So from these two, Virgil goes on, that is from the from art and nature, if you call to mind the opening verses of Genesis, well, God, Virgil knows Genesis, we find the ways to enhance life and advance humanity. What in the world is he talking about? He's talking about two things here in Genesis, and let me read the passage. When Adam and Eve eat the fruit, Early on, God curses them and curses the snake and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Upon your belly thou shalt go and all that. And then God says to the man, I'm at Genesis 3, verse 17 through 19, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorn and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Wow, big curse and big problems going on there. But we're going to skip over the misogyny problems. We're going to skip over the generative problems. We're going to skip over the 
potential uh, commandment here for vegetarianism, which many see. Skip over all of that stuff and just pick on that bit. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. That seems to be what's going on here. If you remember that, in other words, you have to you have to work nature in order to make anything happen. And in the same way that you have to work nature to earn your bread, in the same way you have to work nature to earn your art. But I would also say, go back to the very opening of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Go back to those very early verses, the first ones. They seem, in this passage, at least to me, it seems that the claim is being made that God is an artist, and the art that God makes is the world. It is this art, that nature, this natural world around us, is God's artistry, and therefore my art is based on this. From this nature, then I make art, and we find the ways, Virgil says, to enhance life and advance humanity. So by tilling the ground and by making art, we find ways to enhance life and advance humanity, which means that's the point of art, to enhance life and advance humanity. There's the theory of art. You might say, well, that seems rather self-evident. It's not. And if you accept God as the artist who creates nature, and you are an artist, and you use nature to create your art, ultimately, you will enhance life. Isn't it beautiful? You'll add to it. You'll make it more flavorful. You will enhance life, and you will advance humanity. Remember last time I said, oh, we're solidly in the Middle Ages in that passage? (laughs) We're solidly in the Renaissance right there. Advance humanity? That's the point to a progressive notion of development and growth based on art? Now suddenly we seem very much stepped over a line into the modern world. Virgil goes on and says, and because the usurer goes another way, he disrespects both nature and her disciple, that is art, setting his hope in something else. So here's the problem usurers try to make something out of nothing. They take money, not the natural world, and they try to make something out of it. So what they are doing is a blasphemous notion of creation. They are looking at some that money, which is in the end unnatural, according to Thomas Aquinas. They're looking at money itself, which is unnatural, and they're trying to further create something out of it. That's why usurers are the farthest down. And that's what can, I know it's hard to get your brain around, that's what connects them to art. Because they're trying to make something out of something that humans shouldn't make something out of. Or they're trying to make something out of something else unnaturally instead of the way it's supposed to work which is your craft, your art, that which you do arises from the natural world in the same way that the natural world arises from the imagination and ingenuity of God. And usurers thwart that progression. Really, what this is, is a bit of scholastic logic. And let me just lay it out very plainly for you. When we get to the violent, 
the blasphemers commit violence against God directly, or they try to. It's impossible. You can't, of course. You cannot commit violence against God, but they try to. And so in blaspheming, it's violence directly against God. The next rung down will be the homosexuals. Their violence is directly against nature and indirectly against God. That is, they have formed unions, this pains me as a gay man to say, they have formed unions that are non-generative. And because they're unnatural, the homosexuals commit violence against nature directly. And since nature is God's child, therefore indirectly against God. And now one step down the argument further, this is where it gets hard, the usurers commit violence against art directly and indirectly against God and nature. So they're taking God's grandchild, art, and they're committing violence against it. And because it's God's grandchild or nature's child, therefore their violence is indirectly directed at God and nature. You may say, what in the world is the point of all of this? The point of all of this is this is deductive scholastic reasoning. You take a series of propositions, you work them out to their fullest deduction, and this is where you end up. A point at which moneylenders are lower down in hell even than murderers. And to my modern mind, it is painful. To a scholastic mind, it makes total sense because you got to take the propositions and you just got to follow them where they will go deductively, never looking back, no matter how it might violate the emotional part of the argument itself. I know it's hard to get your brain around, but what I want you to get your brain around is the notion that we had a question about usury, which blew out into a question about art. Art follows the master. Art is God's grandchild. Art is educative. Art is generative. Art is based on nature. Art advance, enhances life and advances humanity. And not just art like paintings on a, pan, on a canvas or words on a parchment. No, art, craft, all the things that you do, whether it's glass blowing or tilling the ground, or creating bricks, or I don't know, name it, building homes, all the things that you do to enhance life and advance humanity, that's how you know it's proper craft or art. A question about how sin works ultimately got around to a question about how art works. Virgil now offers the temporal marker. Now follow me. For I wish to be on our way. And it's there's a little bit of a play there. Remember, art follows and <laughs> nature and nature follows God and art and pupil. And then Virgil comes out of all of this and almost like a, an elbow to the ribs, yuck, yuck, says, now follow me. And I wish to be on our way <laughs> in all the way that all of this following before has been done. Pisces glitters at the horizon. And the Big Dipper lies in the direction of the northwest wind. Again, I'm not going to talk about how Virgil knows where the, the constellations are, but essentially it is about 4 a.m. on Saturday in Italy, which means 
well, two things. It means they had been walking for about 10 hours. They left at around 6 p.m. on Friday evening. Remember, Dante woke up in a dark wood on Thursday night. There was an entire day spent wandering around that wood and then trying to get up that mountain and then the beast and falling back down just as the sun was rising. Then Virgil appeared. Then we had to have the whole story about Virgil and Beatrice and Lucy and the Virgin and all that stuff. And so as just as the sun was going down, remember, as the animals were returning to their nests, all those kind of metaphors that started happening. So they start out somewhere around 6 p.m. on Friday evening. That's a guess when evening is. So now it's about 4 a.m. in the morning in Italy. So they've been walking 10 hours. It's also Holy Saturday. It's 4 a.m. on the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And basically they're about halfway through their journey of Inferno, as we'll find out from temporal markers. But what I find interesting here is that after all this spatial mapping and theological reasoning about hell, but all this spatial mapping of hell, and if you recall in a previous episode of the podcast, I tried to link spatial mapping, the drawing of maps, and theology, and say in the early days of the Age of Exploration, the two were linked together. Okay, if you accept all of that and spatial mapping and theological reasoning have been running hand in hand here, we come out to a temporal marker. All of that mapping that went on in Canto 11 ends at time. It's fascinating. It's it's so evocative. We've had the landscape, the lay of the land, why the lay of the land is the way it is, deductive reasoning, all that stuff. And the final point we get in the mapping of the world is a temporal marker, is time. As if that is the most secure marker we could lay down, or that is the final marker we could lay down, or that is finally the way that is understandable, <laughs> as if time is understandable, that somehow time is understandable, that it is the marker that finally gets down, laid down at the back lines of Canto 11 before we pass on to the violent. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. I hope you'll subscribe. I hope you'll give it a rating. Drop right down to the bottom of the Apple page. You can write a rating there. And hey, Here's a favor you could do for me. If you know someone who would like this podcast, could you recommend it to them? That would be a fantastic thing. I know people who are actually doing this podcast together. I know one family who is actually doing it together. Uh, two adults and their two grown children are actually doing this podcast together. They're quite a bit behind this episode. And by the time they hear me see this, I don't know, maybe they won't even still be walking the journey with us. They're quite a bit in the back, but still they're walking along. I know actually of two people who are walking the podcast together, but they don't even live near each other. One lives here and the other lives in Australia and they are walking uh, this podcast together, both listening to it and then both thinking about it together. Fascinating. And I'm thrilled with that. If you know somebody who would like this podcast, can you recommend it to them? That would be fabulous. And come back next time because we are about to descend finally to Circle 7 and the Violent on the next episode of Walking with Dante.